The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Women and Sport, The Long Road Up, with host Carol Oglesby. This program explores the historical roots that women's sport has taken in the past half century, from light competition to collegiate, professional, and Olympic sports today. Now, here is your host, Carol Oglesby. Welcome, welcome to everyone out there, either already or fast becoming a serious fan of women's sport. This is the fifth in our 13 show series, and this one focuses on an important member of the cast of characters that promotes, protects, and nurtures female athletes moving towards star status. Our special guest today is Ms. Yolanda Yo Jackson, founder and CEO of Yolanda L. Jackson and Associates, Inc., With more than 30 years' experience in the field and an in-depth knowledge of athletes, Yolanda has successfully cultivated and expanded alliances with corporate sponsors, organizations, sport industry executives, and the media, all for the benefit of her clients. I guess one of the bio elements I find most impressive is that Yolanda was handpicked by the great Arthur Ashe to play a key role in the creation of his Arthur Ashe Athletic Association, which she continued to manage after his death. Yo, I, I am proud to say that we have been friends and colleagues for a long time. And a I very ap- long time, Carol. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate so much you joining me for this show. Um, we want to get to know you better as a person as well as an, an executive. So I'm going to ask you to go back with me to the beginning. So okay. where did you grow up and were you into sports as a girl? Well, I was born and raised in New Rochelle, New York. It's, a, uh, it's uh, in Westchester County in New York. Uh, it's about 20, about 25 miles northeast of Manhattan. Um, I was the um, um, sixth of um, six child and the only girl uh, in my family. I had five brothers. I was the only girl and the youngest. Oh, my. Uh, oh, my. <laughs> yes. Uh, and I was, um, I think, a tomboy from the very beginning because everywhere my brother went, the one who was closest to me in age, he was about a year and a half older than me, Everywhere he went, I went. So, of course, he was uh, involved in sports or loved sports, so I copied him. Uh, Wherever he went, whatever he did, I did. And luckily, I had my mother was a um, big supporter and encouraged me to participate in activity, even though I was a girl back then. Uh, And back then, of course, if you get involved in sports, you were called a tomboy. Well, you know, I, I wore that proudly. Because my mother said she was one herself, so that made it even better. So I got involved with sports from um, watching my brother. I would go to the baseball fields with him every weekend, and he would play baseball, and I would just sit and watch, and I wish that I could play too. 
uh, and every time I went, I would ask if I could play. Of course, the team was made up of all boys, and they would say, no, you're a girl. But one day, they were short, uh, a, a team member, and I said, please let me play. I can play. I can play. So they had to because they didn't have enough people on their team, so they had to have me play. So, of course, I was a little bit nervous, but I said, hey, this is my chance. So the first time I got up to bat, the bases were loaded, and I said, oh, gosh, they're going to really, really regret this. But I got up to bat, and my first pitch, I hit it, and it was a grand slam, and um, oh, I wow. kind of earned earn my stripes. So after that, they started fighting to see who was going to have me on their team. So uh, that was that pretty is, cool. That was my, that that was my too first good. real introduction into sports. Do you remember roughly how old you were when that happened? I was about eight, I think. Wow. Eight well, that's nine. fantastic. Fantastic. Um, it sounds like I was going to ask the question, um, how old were you approximately when did you become aware that there were some special obstacles for girls and women in sport? But it sounds like that awareness came pretty early. Would you say that? Well, especially with girls, yeah. Back back uh, when I was growing up, girls just didn't participate in sports. But I was I was always outdoors, always doing something. I remember my my biggest hobby back then was climbing trees. I had to see uh, who how high I could climb. So I would find the tallest tree in the neighborhood and climb it, and that would be you know my claim to fame. I climbed that tree, nobody else did. So. I was always doing something. I was on the monkey bars. I was on the swings. I was always active, always moving around. So um, it wasn't strange to me to to be active and to be physical and to be involved in sports. Uh, and I didn't realize, actually, until even, even with the whole baseball thing, I didn't realize that um, it was a, an issue or a problem because girls just didn't play sports back then, and that was just an accepted thing. But it wasn't until I got older um, and in fact, started uh, working, especially at the Women's Sports Foundation, that I realized what um, what a problem it was for female athletes. But it wasn't until then. Even when I was involved in sports as a high school kid, and and was watching the Olympics and seeing my my uh, heroines, um, Willie White and Wilma Rudolph and Flojo, and think what a great thing it would be to be able to be in the Olympics. But I never saw myself as having a career as a professional athlete or a career in sports. So it wasn't until much later that I saw that this was going to be a, an issue. Um, I'm wondering if uh, at the earlier time that we're speaking of here, um, if you thought very much about um, uh obstacles that would have to do with race or maybe with money, uh, finances. Uh, did, did these kind of things come into your mind or was, you know, mostly it was just about trying to find something fun to do that day? That I know that was my, that was my engagement. Yeah. Yeah. Back then, Carol, um, I didn't think in terms of that, um, about uh, sports being an issue. It was, to me, it was just fun. And I, I didn't see it being an issue. I didn't see it being a problem. I just saw it as being something I could be good at and something uh, I could compete at. Um, so I didn't see it as being um, a problem until later on. Mm-hmm. Um, how was it that you, uh, I know, uh, tell me a little bit about your college experiences if you played sports, uh, but then uh, how did you link up with the Women's Sports Foundation? How did that happen? 
uh, okay, let me just go back to college. I didn't play sports in college. I went to a, uh, I went to Iona, which was located in my city in New Rochelle. So it was, um, I was able to commute there. And at the time that I was going to college there, it was in the 70s, they didn't have um, a, um, a physical education program or a, even a sports complex, one that like, they have now. The only thing that they had for sports was the, the, the men's basketball team. They didn't even have a women's basketball team. So I didn't play um, sports in college. I did play basketball and volleyball in high school. Uh, and I continued playing softball, but um, I didn't play in college. And the way I got involved with the Women's Sports Foundation is that um, I was uh, attending some postgraduate um, courses at NYU. Uh, they had a course in sports management, and um, the, uh, they had a guest speaker uh, one day who, who happened to be Deborah Larkin, or who was Deborah Slainer then, of, who was executive director of the Women's Sports Foundation, and she was talking about the foundation and about um, what it did. And interestingly enough, I had heard about the foundation um, prior to that from watching Good Morning America when my when Martina Navratilova was on talking about a donation that she had made to the foundation. And uh, later, when I was working with Essence magazine, I was working on a cover. Uh, shoot with Flojo, Flora's Griffiths Joiner, and she happened to, I happened to uh, uh, go with her to one of the Women's Sports Foundation's gala, and that's the second time that the Women's Sports Foundation's name came up. So when Deborah came to speak to the class, I said, okay, now I'm hearing about the Women's Sports Foundation quite a lot lately. I think I better pay close attention to this. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Deborah did say at the, at the end of her presentation that they were always looking for volunteers, and if anyone was interested, to um, let her know. So I found it very intriguing. I said, wow, an organization that just deals with women athletes. I said, that sounds like a lot of fun. I want to check this out. So I got Deborah's contact, got in touch with her, and started working at the foundation as a volunteer for a couple of days a week. Wow, I did and, not know that. So you were a volunteer yeah. first. Oh, oh and it gets, it gets better. It gets better, Carol. <laughs> um, after a, uh, a couple of months, uh, Deborah asked if I knew of any people of color, any girls of color who might want to be an intern. And I said, yeah, I'll be an intern. And she said, really? And I said, yes. I said, well, by this time I was in my 30s, I guess, uh, maybe early 40s. And I said, sure. And I still had my own PR firm by then. I was, I was doing some PR consulting, so I was doing that um, full-time and working at the foundation on a part-time basis. And she said, okay, fine, you know, come on in. So I started uh, at the foundation as an intern. Uh, shortly after I started, the uh, foundation got a grant to um, a donation for a grant uh, program for girls, for girls sports, and um, Deborah asked me to oversee it, and I did. The next year was renewed, and she asked me to stay on to do that, and I did. And so uh, I became kind of like really immersed in this. I said, well, I really kind of like it here. And then I started thinking in terms, okay, what else can the foundation do for for athletes? And I kept getting, we kept getting these phone calls from athletes wanting to get some information from the foundation about how they can promote themselves in their sport. And I said, you know, this is a tailor-made opportunity 
for the foundation to have a speaker service where athletes could um, be uh, connected with speaking opportunities and be able to promote, promote themselves and their sport and to get paid at the same time. So I put together a business plan and presented it, and it got accepted. And then I said, okay, guys, so now we have to talk about um, my position here. I said, if we, I would love to stay here, but I also have my own um, uh, consulting firm, so let's talk about how we're going to make this work. So at that time, Donna Lopiano was the executive director. She liked where I was going with the speaker service, and she said, come on board. We'll hire you full-time. And that's how I became a full-time staff member of the foundation. I went from volunteer to intern to full staff. Wow. And and actually, you had been an intern then for a year or two doing some pretty significant work before you became full-time. Right, right. Well, it's a statement that um, it's worth it sometimes to maybe, uh, you know, take a, a lesser position for a little while because you've got something really big in the wings. Um, so uh, tell me about it. the speaker service actually became even bigger than just just arranging for speaking engagements. Um, tell, tell a little bit more about how that Speakers Bureau with the foundation um, sort of expanded their, their reach. Uh, well, what happened was we, um, uh, we started working with individual athletes who um, got in touch with us about doing some, some promotional things for themselves. And then we started getting calls from schools uh, asking for athletes to come and speak um, at their fundraiser or to to clinics and whatever. So um, we started that small. And then um, I talked to Donna um, at the time. I said, you know, um, really, this really could could, um, expand out to something really pretty significant. If uh, we work with the sponsors and having the speaker service be part of this overall sponsorship um, contract, and so the sponsors, along with sponsoring certain parts of the Women's Sports Foundation, they added a uh, piece for athletes for them to be involved in their events and speaking engagements and opportunities and pay them a separate fee to do that. So it became part of the sponsorship contract, which boosts the uh, uh, the visibility even more. Well, is it, it, it seems to me that I recall that at times, like at the gala or when uh, numbers of the athletes would be together, you would actually do workshops and things to uh, build skills, like interview skills. Or is that? Am I? Is my memory serving correctly on that? Absolutely right, Carol. You're really very good. Your memory is very accurate. Yes, what we did was we would bring the athletes in for the weekend, uh, and this goes back to probably the, the mid '90s, where we uh, brought in sometimes close to 150, 200 athletes to the event and bring them in for the weekend. And we would have 
uh, workshops, seminars with workshops, where we would bring in um, experts in different areas that the athletes were interested in, like how to get representation, how to get an agent, uh, how to deal with their finances, um, how to market themselves, how to put together a marketing plan. So we did all that during that weekend that they were in, in, in town. And I understand that the foundation is, is doing that again you know, under Deborah's um, leadership. Deborah is, is back uh, as a CEO. And I think uh, you, um, you had her and Marge on uh, one of your shows. Yes, yeah, the um, number, number one show. Right. Well, they're they're doing that. They've called the athlete leadership forum, and so they're continuing to do that, which is is amazing because now uh, the athletes are getting more exposure, more visibility, um, and as a result of the '96 Olympics, if you recall, the '96 Olympics was the Olympics that I said put the put women women athletes on the map because they came back from the Olympics with the mother load of the gold medals. So all of a sudden, people realized that women athletes were pretty good and then they had some skills so um, as the years went on um, they are getting more uh, experience in promoting themselves uh, they're getting more recognition um, so um, they're finding it even uh, more important that they have these kinds of skills mm-hmm. and this was all offered at no cost to the athletes right this was just strictly a service from the foundation right. to the athletes that's right yeah. That's right. The athletes attending uh, what is called the annual salute to women in sports was kind of the foundation's way of thanking them for what they've done to promote sports uh, and girls and to promote the Women's Sports Foundation because in, in reaching out to the different athletes and over the 23 some odd years that I worked there, I, I think I connected with over 3,000 athletes. So these athletes were then uh, asked to go out and promote the Women's Sports Foundation's mission as ambassadors. So uh, in return for that, we would invite the athletes into New York for the weekend, um, uh, present them at the dinner, um, uh, feature them uh, with the, the famous uh, March of Athletes, and present them to the sports community. Um, and many of them were able to find sponsorship that way, agent representation, visibility. Uh, so it was a, a perfect stage to, um, to showcase these amazing athletes. Okay, very good, Yo. We're going to have to take a short break here. And when okay. we return, when we return, we're going to shift uh, topic a little bit and talk to Yo about a pretty devastating shock that she was com- called upon to deal with um, at, at, during the time she was at the foundation. You're listening to Women in Sport, The Long Road Up. your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. Carol Oglesby has a documented commitment to performance enhancement and development of positive embodiment along the full age and ability spectrum. She has created sport community-based programs that empower, educate, motivate in a sports plus model. She has worked with elite athletes who have experienced injury, burnout, and challenged relationships with coaches and teammates. She is a life coach dedicated to aid in the rediscovery of clarity, purpose, and joy in clients. Call Carol today at 8 8- 
818-324-2957. That's 818-324-2957. On the Right Road with host Paula Phillips has arrived at Voice America. With remarkable heart and realness, this popular program brings inspiration, ideas, opportunities, and help to teachers and parents around the globe who work daily to guide kids on the right road in school and in life. Join the Right Road family of kindness, uplifting, and support. Tune in to On the Right Road, live every first and third Sunday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Should there be more to your life? Do you need a change? Transformation for Success with Dr. Barbara Young will provide empowering commentary each week to encourage you. She will interview successful personalities from movies, television, business, technology, health, and academia. All of them have amazing stories resulting in transformed lives. You'll learn how to discover real happiness, financial success, and fulfillment to live your highest purpose. Join her on Tuesdays at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and a replay Fridays at 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Women's Channel. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. You are tuned in to Women and Sport, The Long Road Up. To reach Carol Oglesby or her guest today, please call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Now back to this week's show. Welcome back to Women and Sport, The Long Road Up. This is the Empowerment Channel of Voice America. We're talking today with Yolanda Jackson, the founder of a firm that markets female athletes. Um, let's go back again, Yolanda, and your um, ask a question about your uh, sort of your childhood and, and uh, young adulthood. Um, during this time, how was your health and energy? It sounds like you were very active and uh, leading the way with all the sports in the neighborhood. Um, did you ever have any health issues particularly that you were dealing with? Well, when I was growing up, no. I was very active, very healthy. Um, I did a lot of sports. I did a lot of, played a lot of tennis. I played a lot of softball. I skied, uh, went to the gym, uh, racquetball, uh, squash. So I did a lot of activity. I loved to run. In fact, when I was uh, younger, I, I, I participated in what they call the Playground Olympics, where uh, I won medals in 100 meters. Uh, races, so I was a sprinter. So I loved to run. So I was jogging. I was doing all the great things that were supposed to keep you healthy, and all the things that I enjoyed doing. I always loved to run, uh, so I did a lot of that. Uh, so I was very healthy growing up. Uh, never had any any major health or problems or uh, health issues at all. So then it sounds like you were not exactly prepared, if anybody ever is, um, but, but uh, instead were pretty shocked with a cancer diagnosis. So could you tell us a little bit about uh, what led to getting that information? Yes, I, I was shocked um, uh, with that. Uh, I was diagnosed uh, uh, in uh, May of 2008, and the way I, I was diagnosed was really kind of a very serendipitous. I was um, um, planning a trip uh, overseas, and I was having some 
uh, stomach problems, uh, and I'd, I'd had some some history with some uh, acid reflux, so I thought it might be that. And I did have a, an ulcer a, a few years back, and it's, it, it, it felt like those kinds of symptoms. So I said, well, I don't want to go overseas and get sick there, so let me go check it out before I went. So I went to see my, my gastro guy, and he examined me, and he knew my history, and he said, you know what, everything's fine. All the tests came back negative, but uh, do me a favor, and when you come back from your trip, go and get a CAT scan just to be on the safe side. So uh, this was March, and Carol, if you remember, uh, it was um, April when, um, or May when we were going overseas for the IWG conference. Uh, so I was preparing for that. And uh, so April, when we went overseas and came back, uh, and I, I was fine. I had no symptoms. There was absolutely no reason for me to, to see the doctor or to follow through with getting a test, except for the fact that I promised him I would. So uh, I did. I went and had the CAT scan, and that's when they found the tumor on my pancreas. So it was quite by accident that that happened. Um, and if I hadn't kept my promise to my doctor, um, I, I don't think I would have survived. Undoubtedly. I, I know that uh, probably talking to about this whole um, period of time is is really hard, but I wondered if you could. I want. I wanted. Uh, I thought it would be important for you to take us on that journey because it does um, interact now and again with actually your work with the foundation. So, um, what happened with the the period of time with the treatment and how long a period of time are we talking about there? Um. Let's see, the treatment, uh, I was diagnosed in May, uh, mid-May. I started treatment, I, I, I was, uh, I had surgery in mid-June, and the treatment started in mid, um, uh, mid-July. Uh, and now let me preface all this by saying, um, uh, when you asked about being shocked, I was because, uh, and I know you know Willie White, but Willie White, my good friend Willie White, who was a five-time, fought with a five-time Olympian in track and field, died from pancreatic cancer uh, less than a year after she was diagnosed. So when I got this diagnosis, that's all I could think about was Willie. So I had the, uh, started the treatment in July. Um, and it was a very aggressive uh, treatment uh, of uh, radiation and chemo that together lasted for six months. So it was a six-month treatment. Uh, every day um, I had uh, chemo uh, for six for three weeks and then radiation and then two weeks off. And then, well, it was off and on, off and on for six, six months. Um, so it was pretty aggressive, um, and I did have all of the... Uh, the, the uh, things, the um, fallout that, that was known at that time for chemo, uh, I lost my hair, I lost the, uh, uh, the, my fingernails and toenails, I lost the skin on my hands and feet, I lost close to 40 pounds, so it was, it was pretty severe uh, for a significant amount of time. Um, but um, I was able to go back to working from home at least um, in August. It was a couple of weeks after I started uh, my treatments that I felt uh, well enough to, to do something. So I was working from home. Um, and then in September, I started going uh, into the office uh, two or three days a week because we were preparing for the annual gala in October. So I had to get back to work. But if it wasn't for the support of my colleagues at work, Billie Jean King was absolutely amazing. Uh, my uh, support 
staff, my support team of my uh, my my family and friends. Um, that meant everything. And having a job that I loved to help me to stay focused and distracted was was amazing. It was just terrific. Uh, talk a little bit about uh, the relationships that you've had with the athletes that you're working with and um, did they know about what was happening in your life or did they ever talk to you about um, what was happening and maybe you had the idea that they were perhaps um, learning things uh, about vicariously in any way uh, about dealing with uh, difficulties like this? Um. I some of them knew. In fact, there were athletes, of course, who were on the board of the foundation, and, and uh, these were athletes that I recruited um, to the foundation um, in my in my work and in, in researching and getting athletes involved in, in leadership positions. So there were athletes on the board who knew, and and I'm sure that that's how the word got out to other athletes because. Uh, before I knew it, you know, many I was getting you know messages from from many of the athletes of, of support and uh, prayers, and, and they were they were just great. They were very supportive. My my concern was, um, and one of the reasons why I didn't want to make a, a huge public announcement about this is um, because of the type of cancer I had. Um, the pancreatic cancer, and with the survival rate of than six percent, making it to the first year, people always felt that uh, a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer automatically meant a death sentence. So I did not want to uh, people to think that um, I was not going to be around very long. You know, because I, I just um, so I didn't want to make it a a, 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 a huge public thing. Uh, and then, but here I am, eight years later. So um, I'm living proof that um, it doesn't have to be a death sentence. And you had said to me at uh, at certain points along the way that you felt that your relationships um, with work and the things that you were doing uh, were very important to you, um, to your recovery. And it certainly sounds like you were back at it so soon after and, and during the time that these uh, treatment regimens were taking place. Were you pretty impressed with yourself? I think that you should have well, well, you know what, Carol, I tell you, it was it was so therapeutic that I, I had I had this job to keep me busy and, and again this was right in the middle of, of planning for this major event um, and and I do remember um, the the day of the event we were going through dress rehearsal and I felt the sickest I had ever felt since I had been diagnosed I, I, I just everything just kind of um, came down on me all at once um, uh, but it was it's what it's what kept me going you know it kept it kept me going through all the radiation and through all the chemo and all of the treatments and all of the fallouts and all of the side effects it was it was that's what kept me going the athletes kept me going you know i call them my kids you know um they keep me young and they keep me vibrant they keep me alive so um there was there was uh, no question that i was going to um continue to, to not only work but survive. Uh, they really they helped me to survive because this was this was uh, this was my lifeline, my lifeline. You you said earlier that um, the number of people that you might be have dealt with uh, was in 
the neighborhood of 3,000 or so. Um, mm-hmm. that's, a, that's an enormous number of athletes. Um, I'm wondering, uh, you, I don't know if you're, you have to be careful about uh, talking exactly who you were speaking with and working with, but um, could you tell us about maybe a couple of the stories, that, uh, their stories that were the most powerful to you uh, through the time that you were working with the Foundation Athletes? Oh, oh gosh! Yeah, I have a lot of good stories. Um, I think one of my one of my favorite stories, um, well, a couple of them. I don't. Uh, uh, one of them was Benita Fitzgerald Mosley, and Benita Fitzgerald Mosley is uh, an African American um, uh, hurdles uh, uh, Olympian, gold medalist, who participated in the uh, 1980, I think, Olympics and won a gold medal. First African American, first woman. Uh, an American to win a gold medal in the hurdles at the Olympics, and she, um, her story was was relegated to the back pages of the newspaper because it was the same day that Zola Blood, Zola Bud, and Mary Slaney collided. And if you understand, we were still having problems dealing with that South Africa. And uh, Zola Bud was from South Africa. Murray Dekaslany was from American. So that took precedence over Benita's amazing story of winning the gold medal. So I read that, and I tracked Benita down and uh, invited her to the dinner. And she came, and her story was able to be told at the dinner. Uh, and uh, Benita went on to become... Uh, become um, a leadership position in the foundation. She became a board member, uh, soon became a president, and uh, later chair of the board, and went on to have amazing positions at the USOC. And she now has an amazing position at Laureus USA, which is a major uh, sports organization. So that's, 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 that's one of my success stories, I like to say. Oh, that's and, a beauty. That's a beaut. That's a beauty. Because she could have been, you know, just washed away in the tide of, uh, because a lot of uh, the same thing that happens uh, after the Olympic Games, there's some focus on the women athletes at the Olympic Games typically. And then uh, people have commented how it just disappears off the scene. And that certainly could have happened with uh, Benita Fitzgerald Mosley had it not it, it, been... Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, Jackie Dorn Hersey said that to me once. She said, and it was right before the 96 Olympics where the, uh, the women were getting uh, a lot of uh, attention, pre-attention. And she said, Yolanda, everybody wants a piece of you before the Olympics, at every Olympics. But once the Olympics is over, nobody wants to talk to you until four years later. And, 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 and that was so true back then that uh, the only time that, uh, the women athletes got noticed is when the, around the Olympics. And then there were certain sports like track and field and gymnastics um, and swimming and soccer. Um, but uh, it's true. Um, we were able to bring so many of the athletes to the foundation and showcase them, showcase them and their sports. Uh, and I know uh, right before the dinner, the year before an Olympic uh, Games, whether it's the winter or the summer, we would uh, research those athletes that we thought would be, um, would be on the uh, Olympic team uh, going to the Olympics, and we would invite those athletes to the dinner. And in other words, just to have them be seen first by our audience. Oh, yeah, th- these are the Olympic hopefuls that we feel are going to do well in the Olympics. And then the following year, the Olympic year, we bring back those same athletes and some others, 
and show that these very same athletes were the ones that actually medaled at the Olympics. And you, by the way, you guys, you saw them here first. So we had fun doing that. It was, was one of the uh, best times that we would have in, in um, picking the Olympic medalists every, every, um, every quad. Well, we've got about time during this segment for maybe one more story. Is there another one, uh, another person's story that strikes you as really an amazing one? Yeah, I have, a, I, like I said, there's so many, but uh, Amy Mullins is one of the ones that I've, I've always uh, uh, felt very, very deeply. Amy was another track and field athlete. She was a double below-the-knee amputee. She, uh, I saw her race one Saturday. I was flipping channels on the ESPN and saw her racing with what looked like inverted skis, and I said, oh, my God, this is amazing. Who is she? So I tracked her down at Georgetown. Um, got her contact information, invited her to the dinner. And when she was announced, she, was, she walked across the stage with stiletto heels, a long gown, slid up the, slid up the side. And when, when it was announced that she was a double below the knee amputee, it took the audience at least 20 seconds to realize that this woman had no legs. And so they immediately gave her a standing ovation, and, and it went on and on and on and on and on. She's now, and she, she's also became a, a member of, of the Women's Sports Foundation Board, a president of the foundation, and she's now um, a pretty, uh, pretty good and pretty um, noted uh, actress. So she's, she's, she's come a long way. Oh, wow. I think you, you need to write a book, yo. Uh, we're we're, we're going to have to thought take of, I thought of it. I I'm sure. It. We need to take a break here, and we'll come back to Yolanda's incredible success story uh, on the long road up. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Carol Oglesby has a documented commitment to performance enhancement and development of positive embodiment along the full age and ability spectrum. She has created sport community-based programs that empower, educate, motivate in a sports plus model. She has worked with elite athletes who have experienced injury, burnout, and challenged relationships with coaches and teammates. She is a life coach dedicated to aid in the rediscovery of clarity, purpose, and joy in clients. Call Carol today at 818-324-2957. That's 818-324-2957. Make life work with Kathy Ellis is a mix of insights into human behavior about how we shape the culture and the culture that traps us and ideas on how to get out of our own way. Kathy has plenty to talk about from becoming true individuals to growing as a society. And she has some ideas for making business work, how family work, relationships work, and even how to get the kids to literally do more work. How to make life work. Tune in every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Empowerment. How are you doing in your life? Do you control your life or does it control you? In our hectic, overconnected world, do you spend too much time feeling tired and wired? 
Tune in to Master Your Life with hosts Leah Mattinson and Dr. Howard Rankin for inspiration, insight, and intelligence on how to gain control of yourself and your life. Along with some inspirational and knowledgeable guests, Leah and Howard will give you the tools needed to help you on your journey. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. You are tuned in to Women and Sport, The Long Road Up. To reach Carol Oglesby or her guest today, please call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Now back to this week's show. Welcome back, everyone. We're talking with Yolanda Jackson, um, who's founded a company to market female athletes. Um, Yo, at a certain point, I mean, you were with the foundation for uh, quite a number of years, but at a certain point, you left the Women's Sports Foundation to start your own business. Uh, Although early on, you had your own business as well, but you're back uh, back with it now. Um, Was that difficult to do or or scary at all? Uh, No, it wasn't, Carol, because it was something that I had... Uh, been planning to do for some time, and, and it, the timing just presented itself that it was the right time to do that. Uh, and I always knew that I would continue to work with women athletes. Um, and, and now I'm just connecting with uh, with uh, I'm connecting athletes with events and projects and opportunities that interest them, like advocacy, education, philanthropy. So um, I'm 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 doing it as a consultant, but essentially doing almost the same thing I did at the Women's Sports Foundation. But I'm making it more personal for the athletes. At the foundation, I was recruiting uh, athletes to be uh, ambassadors to help uh, spread the mission of the foundation. Now I'm working with athletes to essentially help spread their own mission and and to uh, work uh, on things or promote things that are near and dear to them, like advocacy, education, philanthropy. So uh, I'm, I'm, it's, it's a more direct, more personal relationship now that I'm, I'm having with them. Well, could you give us the full name of your business and, like, and, and, and exactly how an individual might contact you if they were interested or thought that um, they needed some of the services you're offering? Uh, really give us a, a little bit more detail on what you do with uh, an athlete who sort of walks in the door today. Okay. Well, let me let me just let me just clarify that um, um, I'm not an agent uh, in the in the in the true sense of being an agent. My, the name of my company is Yolanda L. Jackson um, Incorporated Marketing uh, co- uh, um, Colon Marketing Female Athletes, and um, and I and I and I named it that because, um, as you said, I spent many years with the Women's Sports. I was with the Women's Sports Foundation for like 23, 24 years, and in that time, as I said, I've communicated with many athletes, and many athletes know my know my name. Many of the agents know my name, so my name kind of became a brand in the athlete world. So I, that's why I named it that. And marketing female athletes is what I do. 
Now, in marketing female athletes, what I essentially do is connect them with events, projects, and opportunities, speaking opportunities, maybe sponsorship opportunities um, that would help them to promote themselves. But I'm, I don't act in an agent capacity. What I do is I respond to requests to have athletes participate in different kinds of events and projects like fundraising events, um, clinics, VIP events, um, uh, speaking opportunities. So I Who, connect them with uh, those uh, kinds uh, of activities. Sorry to break in here, but uh, who might be the people who contact you to to make these requests? Are they Um, businesses or? Well, let's see. I've gotten. I've been working on four or five different projects in the last uh, few months, and um, they all had to do with athletes' participation in fundraising events. They'd like them to. uh, They wanted them to be VIP. Um, celebrity attendees at fundraising events. I've had some, uh, I've just got a request from a major telecommunications company to have athletes participate on a, um, a panel dealing with um, uh, sports um, careers. Um, uh, I've worked with um, uh, organizations who are looking to have athletes uh, run, run clinics at their schools. I've had requests for athletes to come speaking at to speak at sales uh, meetings for their uh, for their sales staff to talk about how they have been successful in business after having a successful uh, sporting career. So it runs the gamut. It runs the gamut. I've also had last week. I had a number of athletes. Um, fly into uh, D.C., Washington, D.C., to participate on a congressional panel dealing with the importance of early quality childhood education. And the athletes that I had attend that were athletes uh, who were mothers. So early education was very important to them. So these are the kinds of things that, um, that I've been working with. Well, you do not have a boring moment in your life. I think that's the way it sounds to me. Um, For one thing, I know, too, you were recently named to the board of the USA Synchronized Swim Federation. So what is this this going to entail for you? Um, How are things with this federation shaping up for Rio? Well, you know, when when, when I... um, um Interviewed when I, when I was accepted onto the board, um, I, and, I, and I was thrilled because <clears throat> synchronized swimming has always been a, a, a favorite sport of mine, and I was always very upset and concerned about how it's uh, one of the best kept secrets in sports. And I've told uh, those uh, on the board that. I, in fact, I met individually with each of the board members by phone once once I was uh, uh, put on the board because I wanted to know what their responsibilities were. And and what they saw my responsibility on the board being. And unanimously, it was that we really like what you've been doing at the, with women's sports, uh, with women athletes. We were hoping that you could bring that kind of energy to our board to help promote our athletes, to help promote the sport, to help uh, show the world what an amazing sport this is. So uh, a good, that's, that's right up my alley because I love the sport. Uh, I had an event, uh, I attended an event, um, a fundraising event that they had two weeks ago in San Francisco. I, I brought some athletes to that, athletes who were not synchronized swimmers, so they could uh, be introduced to to the decision makers there and some of the athletes there, and for them to see other athletes and what they've uh, achieved in their in their careers. 
so it worked out really, really well. Um, and we are bringing um, our uh, duets team to Rio, um, and, and the chances of, of um, doing well is very good, so we're very excited about that. Uh, so so my, my role on the board is to help to promote the sport and to help in the development area. Well, as you know more than most, yo, um, women have a difficult time gaining leadership roles in elite sport generally. Um, my perception, although you know maybe it's not accurate, but I, I've I see have seen synchronized swimming as a sport that's historically dominated by women. So I'm mm-hmm. wondering how how are women represented in the federation leadership? Uh, are, are are there more women than men, or or many women anyway, or or is it uh, the situation where many of the leadership positions are held by men? Well, the board, uh, if if you're thinking of uh, terms of the board, there yes. is um, the majority of the board members are well, all of them are, are women except for one. One independent director is is a is a is a man, and he's an attorney. Uh, but the others are women, um, and all of them except for uh, two other independent directors, uh, but one of the independent directors uh, um, does have a, um, or did have a career in synchronized swimming, but all the other board members are career synchronized swimmers uh, who have been devoted their life to the sport, and that was one of the reasons why they're looking outside to get more outside um, Influence or some suggestions about how to promote the sport because they felt that um, uh, the leadership was becoming too insular and, and not being able to branch out and uh, get uh, some information about how to become more global and more universal. So, but the leadership is, is mostly women. Now, when you were talking about uh, taking the duet team to Rio, um, that, that's a women's team. Uh, but are men getting involved in the sport of synchronized swimming? Am I yes, right about that? There. Yeah. Billy May. Billy May is one of the uh, leading um, male synchronized swimmers, and he's been doing very well on a, uh, a national and international level in competition. Uh, the synchronized team itself did not qualify for the Olympics this year, and which he would have probably have been a member of. Uh, but the duets team there, that the duets is, the, of course, the, uh, the two young ladies who are on the, um, the duets team, um, Maria Koroleva uh, and Anita Alvarez are the two who are going to Rio. But uh, so what events would men and maybe maybe I should say for both men and women, what are the events of in a typical uh, synchronized swimming program? Um, they have solo and and they duets. Have, they, yeah. Well, the team works as a team, and then there are solos, and then there are duets, uh, and then there are quartets. So there are different events uh, that uh, the men and the women participate in uh, together. Uh, uh, mixed mixed teams ever? I mean, mixed uh, a mixed quartet, let's say, or well, there could be yeah, there could be a mixed quartet. quartet. Uh, there could be a mixed team. Oh yeah, they're not that many men yet. Right, uh, right. Yeah, I'm sure that I, I that's a, know, that's a struggle. Uh, Billy is one. I think that I think there are one. Uh, there's one other male. Uh, but you know that 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 was a bone of contention back in the day too about having males on a synchronized swimming um, team, but. Um, 
it, it, it is now integrated. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, what's ahead? We're, we're coming towards the end of our program. Yo, um, what's ahead for you? What are the goals that you have or mountains yet to climb? Uh, do you see... Um, taking on more people in your business, or what, what do you think is out ahead for you? Well, my, my goal is to continue to promote women athletes. That's always been uh, something that I'm, I'm very devoted to, uh, and uh, I'd like to provide um, platforms for them to promote themselves, their sport, their interests, um, and um, you know, just to be able to continue to be instrumental in doing that. Uh, and um, as word begins to spread, I am getting calls from different organizations and groups to have athletes do that. And, and the athletes that I've been working with lately have been very anxious and eager to be able to do these kinds of things, again, because they are, they are things uh, near and dear to their heart. So uh, I want to continue doing that. Um, uh, I'm enjoying it. Um, I'm, I'm staying very busy, which is great. Uh, I'm, I'm loving this. I'm loving being busy. Um, so, and, I, and I've been working still with with athletes. I've been in touch with a number of athletes who are uh, who have qualified for the Olympics. So I've been um, working with them on some different projects. Uh, I'm a little concerned about some of the things that's going on over in Rio, but uh, and some of the athletes are also a little concerned. Um, but that's, that's my goal is to continue to do that. Do you feel that there has been, uh, I want to take a second to talk about, um, women of color, uh, from the beginning of your work, uh, unto, unto this present time, do you think that there's been progress and, and what are the areas where there's been progress? If you see them, if you see that, um, I, I think there has been progress, um, uh, with women of color, uh, certainly from when I started working in sports, uh, you know, you can you can name, of course, the athletes who have um, put um, their sport and themselves um, on the map, like Venus and Serena, of course, uh, in tennis, and Sloane Stevens, Madison Keys in tennis, uh, Gabby Douglas and Simone Biles and. Uh, gymnastics, um, Brenda Villa, who was the first um, Hispanic athlete to win a gold medal in a water polo. Uh, and then, of course, uh, Jessica Mendoza, who last year became the first female uh, analyst for Major League Baseball on TV. So um, these are things that uh, you didn't see back in the 80s and 90s when I started working in, in sports. So Things are beginning to to get get better. I would like to see uh, more equity in in uh, in pay for the female athletes. I still see that you know that the women's basketball players still have to play overseas in order to uh, make a significant um, uh, salary in order to to live. So that's still a problem. Um, there are some. Um, uh, Olympic sports, uh, where athletes, uh, women athletes are still paid less than the male athletes. You saw that with the host, with the soccer team a few months ago. They yeah. were being sued against, uh, uh, the federation for not being, um, 
paid equal to the men. So there is still that problem. So there's, there's some gains that have been made uh, in different areas with women in, um, of color, um, but there's still some things that need to be uh, worked on as far as um, uh, equity and pay uh, for all women. Well, I hope that you give yourself a lot of credit for uh, some of the progress that's been made. Yolanda, thank you for joining us on The Long Road Up today. Next week, we're going to be moving into the supporting world of the sports psychologist. So join us again on Women in Sport, The Long Road Up on the Empowerment Channel. Thank you for listening to Women and Sport, The Long Road Up. Please join Carol Oglesby for another edition next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have an amazing week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.